Why are there so many jokes about marriage? Husband and wife are celebrating their 50th anniversary. In the middle of the party, the husband just breaks down and starts sobbing. The wife says, oh, honey, what's wrong? He said, you remember that time we were on your front porch and your daddy caught us kissing? She said, yeah, I remember that. He sent me to, to my room. He said, well, yeah, your daddy told me I had two choices. I could either marry you right quick or he was going to call the sheriff and put me in prison for 50 years. And the wife said, oh, honey, I'm sure he was kidding, but why are you crying and why are you bringing that up now? And he said, well, I just thought that, you know, if I'd taken that first choice, I'd be a free man today. <laughs> okay, husband and wife are, are fighting with each other and they're not speaking. So before he goes to bed, the husband leaves her a note that says, I have an early morning meeting. Please wake me up at 6 o'clock. Well, the next morning he wakes up. It's full sunshine outside. He looks at his watch. It's 8.30 and he screams, I left you a note. Why didn't you wake me up? She goes, oh, well, I did try to wake you up. And there right beside his bedside table is a note complete with a smiley face that says, wake up, honey, at 6 o'clock. We make jokes about marriage because there's a lot to laugh about about marriage. But in many marriages, if we're honest, there's a lot to cry about, too. Marriage is hard. And all the married people are nodding their heads right now. Engaged couples always, never believe this. They always think, well, our relationship is different. And we love each other so much that we're never going to have any of the problems that married people do. And they don't until they get married. There's a reason women cry at weddings. Just kidding. Just kidding. We make jokes about marriage to survive. Because we all know the dour and sad statistics in our country that 40% of first marriages and 60% of second marriages and 75% of third marriages end in divorce. One out of every four children in this country lives with one parent, and another one of those four is in a stepfamily. We joke because divorce touches us all, whether it's our own or our parents, our friends, or our child's. Divorce leaves families torn apart and homes ripped in two. There are battles over who gets what and where the kids are going to live and when you get to see them and how often. And there's complications at every Christmas, every holiday, every vacation, every graduation, every wedding, every family event for the rest of our life. So when these guys in our gospel lesson today ask Jesus if it's okay for a couple to get divorced, they're not talking about some obscure, hypothetical, historical, theoretical, theological issue back then. They're asking the same thing that all of us wonder when divorce becomes a possibility or a reality in our own life. Is it okay for a couple to get a divorce? And Jesus answers, what does Moses say? Which means, what does the Bible say? Now, that's the right place to start with any important question about life or love. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about divorce? The prophet Malachi says it best. God hates divorce because of all the damage that it does to people. God hates divorce, but God loves divorced people. So if you're divorced, and many of us are, including me, please, I hope that you know that God forgives and God heals, and God has brought each of us here into this parish family to love us and to heal us from whatever wounds that life has inflicted on us. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus asks, what does the Bible say? And they knew part of the answer. 
They quote from Deuteronomy, Moses permitted a man to write his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus jumps on the key word in their answer, permitted. Moses permits divorce. The Bible permits divorce. It does not condone it, encourage it, or bless it. And it permits divorce only because that's better than murder or violence or abuse or abandonment. And and notice why Moses permitted it. Because your hearts are hard. Let's be honest. Every one of us is hard-hearted about something. We humans are congenitally selfish. We're born that way. We can't help it. So God in His graciousness leads most of us into a marriage. Now we think God gives us our mate to bless us and serve us and meet our needs. But the real reason that God gives us our mate is to help us get over our own selfishness and to soften our hard hearts as we bless them and serve them and meet their needs. Now, unfortunately, we don't always cooperate with the treatment. And if we as spouses insist upon hanging on to our own selfishness and keeping our hearts hard, or even if only one of us does that, our marriage is probably headed toward divorce. And even if we grit our teeth and we stay together, the marriage will become as hard and rocky and cold as our hearts. So Jesus takes their question, is it okay for a couple to get a divorce? And he punches a hole in it because that's the wrong question. Rather than asking that, the right question is, what can I do to make my marriage the best? That's the cure for divorce. If my marriage is everything it's supposed to be, everything God intends for it to be, then divorce is not even on the horizon. We'll be too busy loving and serving each other to even think about divorce. But how do we get there? How do we make our marriage everything that God intends for it to be? That's where Jesus steers the conversation. And he takes it back back to Genesis when God invented marriage. And he points out four ingredients of a healthy marriage. Jesus says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, many countries today, and ours is one of them, have expanded the definition of marriage beyond a male and a female, and governments have the power to do that. But the first two chapters of Genesis define marriages between one man and one woman, and Jesus agrees with that definition. Now, who can marry whom is not the point of this sermon, but Jesus says it, so we can't ignore it. But the best way to discuss who can marry whom is not in a sermon where I get to do all the talking. The best way to do that would be in a conversation between friends where each of us can share what we think and what we know and what we've seen in the Bible and how we come to our decision. And I invite any of you who would like to have that discussion into that conversation, not to argue, not to debate, not to call each other names, but to share each other, to share with each other and to understand each other. Now, at the end of the conversation, we may agree to disagree. And in the Episcopal Church, it's okay to disagree with a priest. And if that's how we end up, I promise not to kick you out of the Messiah family, and I hope that you will choose to stay in the Messiah family because God's children can disagree without being disagreeable. And that's how we Anglicans roll. When we disagree, we continue praying together, worshiping together, loving one another, trusting that God will lead us together 
into truth. So if you'd like to have that conversation about marriage equality or any other issue, please talk to me and we'll find time to do that. But until we have that conversation, I'm merely quoting what Jesus says here. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And we heard from Genesis, Genesis today how that happened. The first human realized, you know, I got this perfect place to live. I got plenty to eat. I have all the animals in the world who are my pets. But something's still not right. Something's missing. What is it? Well, the missing part was someone to share that perfect life with. It is not good for a man or a woman or anyone to be alone. So God makes a helper. Now, this is when we guys grin and elbow our wives and we say, see, God made you for me. And that's right. God made women to help men because God knows that we men need help. But before we start thinking that the word helper means slave or servant, let's remember that there are several places in the Bible that use the same Hebrew word to say God is our helper. God is my helper, and it's certainly not as my slave or as my servant. God is my partner. He's with me. He gives me advice. He's my friend. And that's what God meant when he made the woman to be a helper suitable for a man. A wife is not a slave or a servant. She's a partner, a friend, a co-worker with advice and encouragement to help. So a healthy marriage is not two people living alone together, doing their own thing with a few occasional hours in bed together. Neither is it one person sitting around while the other one does all the work. A healthy marriage is two people helping each other as partners, co-workers, friends, each supporting the other so that neither is alone. Too often in marriages, each of us think, I want what I want, and I want my spouse to be my helper so I can get it. When God's intention is for each of us to say to the other, I want what you want, and I want to be your helper so that you can get it. If we want our marriages to be the best, the first ingredient is choosing to be a helper to our spouse. Now, some of us are thinking, I'll help him. I'll help her as soon as he or as soon as she helps me. Somebody's got to go first. Why not let it be you? Jesus continues, For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Jesus describes the next three ingredients for a healthy marriage, to leave our family of origin, to unite with our spouse, and then to become one flesh. We have to leave our father and mother, which is not cutting them off or moving to another state. It's making a break from the family that we grew up in and choosing my spouse and our children as my first priority over my mom or my dad or my siblings or the rest of my family. How many marriages are crippled by the words, that's not how mama did it. How many wives feel like they have to compete with their mother-in-law for their husband's attention or affection? And how many husbands never quite measure up to how their father-in-law took care of daddy's little girl? A healthy marriage begins with some separation from our family of origin and then finds a safe distance to keep between ourselves and the rest of our family. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That uniting thing 
It's called marriage. Living together is not the same. Living together is being united sexually and emotionally and maybe even financially. But it's a poor imitation of the union God intends for couples. Marriage is a promise to stay united for better, for worse. Living together is a promise to stay together as long as we feel like we love each other and as long as it's good for me. Marriage says, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. Living together says, this is mine and that's yours and you be sure to pay your half of the rent. Marriage is a step of faith toward each other, letting down our guard, hoping the other will keep their promises. Living together is only partial openness because keeping the option of bailing out if things get too tough is always on the table. Since marriage is such a big, scary commitment, and since so many marriages don't make it, living together seems like a logical way to see if a a couple can make it in marriage. I mean, you know, buy a car without taking a test drive. But research shows that couples who live together before marriage tend to divorce at a higher rate than couples who don't. That's because the walls of self-preservation that live-in couples keep and the presence of an escape hatch in case things go sour become habits and attitudes that they can carry into the marriage. Live-in couples often have a harder time truly opening up and letting down their guard with each other after the wedding because they've learned not to before the wedding. And when they do start to open up after the wedding and get truly honest, the relationship always changes from how it was before, which can prompt one or both to feel, wait a minute, that's, that's not how this was before we got married. What's wrong? And you tricked me. And it can go south from there. A healthy marriage is a total commitment to be united with our mate, and that includes vows and a wedding, not just moving in. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God not only tells us the ingredients for a healthy marriage, He tells us the order in which to add them. Commit to being a helper, leave your mom and dad, be united to one another, and then become one flesh in sexual union. See, too often couples skip over that helping and leaving and uniting part and jump right into bed as the one flesh because that is the fun part. But when they do, it's like building a house without taking the time to dig a foundation to put it on. Because I'll let that part above ground, that's the fun part. The house may look good, it may feel fun, but without a solid foundation, sooner or later, it's likely to sag or shift or collapse. And the good feelings of sex fool couples into thinking they have a foundation, that they're closer than they really are, that they know each other better than they really do, that they're more perfect for each other than they actually may be. But sooner or later, those feelings can fade, which exposes the lack of foundation, and they realize they may not be as close as they thought they were or know each other as much as they thought they did or be as perfect as they imagined they might be. The relationship sags and shifts and may even collapse because those early euphoric feelings drowned out the truth that this couple has not been adding all of the ingredients necessary for a healthy life together for the rest of their life. But they didn't see it because their sexual feelings lied to them. Sex before or outside of marriage is a lie because the sexual act says, I commit my whole being to you. 
I give you my body, my mind, my spirit, my stuff. I share it with you. And that's simply not true until and unless we're married. The Bible tells us to save sex for marriage not because God wants to ruin our life and keep us from having fun, but because God wants the very best for us. And that happens only in a lifelong commitment in which we feel safe enough to open up and give ourselves freely to our mate so that sex can be all that God intended it to be. Before marriage, sex is fake intimacy. After marriage, sex is a sacrament. It's God's gift for those of us as the outward and visible sign of the inward and spiritual grace of our union with each other. And I use those words gifts and sacrament deliberately. For it's in making love that a married couple is most one with each other and with God. Sex is not just the icing on the wedding cake. It's one of the vital ingredients to make a marriage its best. A healthy marriage then includes all of those ingredients in that order. A commitment to be each other's helper, leaving the family of origin, uniting to one another, and then becoming one flesh. Without all four Our marriages are never going to be their best and never will be all that God intends them to be. Now, if a marriage doesn't have all four of those in that order, does that mean it's no good ever? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means it's not quite all God wants it to be. God still heals. God is still gracious. God still blesses. He's still with us. Jesus ends his answer like this. What God has joined together, let not anyone pull apart. Husbands and wives, let's promise ourselves and each other that we will never use the D word about our relationship. The word divorce does not have a place in the vocabulary about our marriage. So let's not threaten it, suggest it, consider it, or even mention it. And that goes for synonyms too, like, I'm out of here, or I can't take this anymore, or why don't you go home to your mother, or go on back or any of those other words that we can spit at each other in the heat of anger that we later regret, but that still hang on that other person like spit on their face. If we never say the D word, we're less likely to do the D word. Instead, let's work at the M word. And by that, I don't mean murder. Let's work at our marriages and give them the attention and energy that they deserve. Now, in your bulletin insert today, there's a list of marriage resources, and they're all books that I've read and recommend. And the great thing about those sorts of things is we can learn from other people's mistakes and other people's experience. And if your marriage is hurting or sick, please find someone to help you heal it. And if you don't know anyone, come talk to Mother Tracy or me. And we have a number of Christian counselors whom we have interviewed and know personally to be very competent and loving, some of whom have helped us in our marriages. That's the goal, to make our marriages the best they can be by including those ingredients that God listed when he invented marriage, to be helpers for each other, to leave our family of origin, to be united to one another, and then to become one flesh until we are parted by death. Because for better, for worse, means for good. Let's change the world with Jesus, one family at a time, starting with our own.